0: Verses from Exodus six, twenty-eight to seven-seven are good ones too. They are. <laughs> uh, but Isaiah forty verses Exodus, one, to, Exodus Exodus forty verses, verses one to 16. to sixteen. I've got it's it. Thank you. Yeah. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen the ark with the veil." You shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father that they may minister as priests to me and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood Throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to all the Lord had commanded him. So he did. May the Lord add to the reading of this word. And um, now, for those who are going to go to King's Kids, they can go to their class. And there will, if you want to hear the sermon translated into Spanish, um, you, you can dial into the number that's, that's there. We
1: changed the number, Kat. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you got it. Oh, uh, sorry about that. Yes. Yeah, so this is um this is what doing church is like from this side of the from of the pulpit. So we welcome you all again. We're in Hebrews, and the reason we did have a Exodus six, which worked really well, but then last night because I know nobody reads the bulletin before Sunday morning, other than Kevin, of course, because he has to. Um, I switched it. And the reason why is I wanted you to get the the full force of what it was like to do what chapter 4 at the end of Hebrews told us to do. Because now we're in chapter 5, verse 1. But the end of chapter 4 told us to draw near to the throne of grace. And what Kevin just read is what the priest had to do Himself, just to simply be able to approach the Holy of Holies. And in our passage today, we're going to talk about that specific selection process and what it has to do with us as it relates to what we are to do for the Lord. And excuse me, and so we're starting a new chapter in Hebrews, and we are going to get on the high priest motif we're going to talk we've been talking about that a lot but now we're really going to get into the details of why jesus is the high priest and why isn't he from the tribe of levi and so i know that uh may seem like okay well what does that mean to us well we're going to get more into this as it goes we got chapter 5 chapter 6 chapter 7 all that talk about this so we're just starting this here in chapter 5, sort of a little bit of a shift of gears in Hebrews to take it up to that next speed and that next level. So chapter 5, verse 1, I'll start with. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. When it says because of it, he's talking about the fact that he is a man taken from men to be a high priest. He is able to um, offer sacrifice for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Verse five, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Number seven, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, talking of Jesus. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he had suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all of those who obey him the source of eternal salvation." being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we will start to see more and hear more about Melchizedek as we go on. And we'll touch on a little bit of this today. Now, as I grew up, especially once I got into my late teens, early 20s, I had pretty much done every single labor job you could possibly think of. Worked in restaurants, delivered pizzas, um, worked in Wawa, worked a forklift. I mean, I could go on and on. These were short-lived jobs. didn't really know, it wasn't too clear before I ended up finding out what it was I wanted to do. And, uh, and so well, I remember one time where uh, a friend of mine persuaded me to do construction. And so construction is never really my forte. I just don't have any enjoyment on fixing things, taking things apart, or finding out more than just the basics on how things work. And I don't like turning a screwdriver, I don't like the way it feels, I don't like holding a hammer, I don't like doing all that stuff, but I was going to be a good construction guy. And I never forget, you know, after a couple of weeks, we used to get there at like six o'clock in the morning, and the whole entire crews were all ready, and then there would be about 25 laborers that the crew chiefs would come out and they would pick to who would be on their team for the day and go out on their job. And do you know, almost every single time I was the last person to be chosen to be put on those construction crews, it was very lonely at the bottom. I always went out, didn't really work too hard, didn't really like carrying books, carrying bricks and things like that. But I always remember I really hated not being selected, not being chosen it, was, it sort of hurt my reputation, hurt my feelings a little bit. Well, I moved on to other jobs, eventually found out what I was supposed to do. But however, when I became a Christian, one of the most, um, I guess, coolest verses you could think, I could think of that I read and I remember saying, wow, this is pretty cool. It says First Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six and 27, it says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble but god has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise just like i was always on that construction crew i always had work i always eventually got chosen they they had it you know something for me to do but on the positive side of that when i think of being a christian regardless of what your skill level is regardless of what gifts you were given, regardless of who you are and what your capabilities are, you are created by God. You have been carefully created by God and put very carefully in this point of bleep, this bleep on the screen in history for a very specific purpose, regardless of your ability or who and what you are as it relates to your chosen profession, profession, so forth and so on. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You see, you notice when we come to Christ, we may not become physically weak, but we become weak in that we surrender to him and we allow his work and his strength to, to operate in us for his purposes. So God finds a place for everyone. One of the things that, God, uh, that I love about our God is that he uses people to do his work. He does not operate without using people and others. Everything is interconnected in God's way of communicating to his people. He's a team player. He uses weak unskilled sometimes foolish sometimes not too intelligent and he searches throughout the earth for these people he doesn't look at them on the outside the bible says he searches to and fro throughout the earth to look on the inside of people what's the heart of this person like is this person's heart being turned towards me And so God searches and looks for those with a true heart for service. And this is what he's talking about here, is about the selection of people to serve the Lord. Now he's talking about the Old Testament, and this happened with Old Testament priests as well. It says, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. So men appoint him, However, it's God who calls them. Now the selection of the priesthood that our readers were used to was all about heredity, all about your what tribe within Israel you came from. You couldn't just there were 12 tribes in Israel, and you couldn't just pick from any tribe to do the work of a priest. It was only from the tribe of Levi. That the priests came. That's why they received no inheritance in the land, because God was their inheritance. They were the ones who served God. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Only those that had that heart that were called and chosen by God. They were As we just read in this Old Testament passage, they were meticulous about being ceremonially clean before they were able even to approach the temple to be able to first offer a sacrifice for themselves before they could even enter into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people. They entered into the priesthood at a very specific age, the age of 30, as Jesus entered into his officially They were committed for the life of their whole entire life for service in the temple. I was just saying before, a couple weeks ago, that when you are ordained by God in the office of a church, when you're an elder, when you're a deacon, when you're called to those offices, you don't ever unbecome one of those. You're always one. Even though you may not be actively serving, this is an appointment from God. It's not an appointment from men, necessarily. It's God who does the calling, man who does the validating, okay? And this is the same with the priest. They were able to go in on the day of atonement, and they were able to cover the sins of the people for another year. It be one day a year that they, would, that they would wait to go into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle that blood over the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, and everywhere else in there. And they were able to do that only because of God choosing them, and men appointing them, and them following those specific directions. They were here, able to, they were supposed to go in, they were to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. And this is somebody that is, the reason they said that is because if somebody feels they're perfect, they're going to have a hard time dealing with the ignorant and misguided. But because the priest's heart was right, he knew he was just as bad as the people he was atoning to, so he could deal gently with them. The word deal gently, uh, there's one word that, is, that makes those two words, and that is to hold back, actually. So it's almost a, f- a form of I want to, you know, I'm not going to say what I want to say. I'm not going to do what I want to do because these people aren't getting it, but I'm able to deal gently and hold back. Why? Because I can relate. To them, this was the big part of being a priest—being able to relate to the people. Now, so the first section here, we see the the we talk about the Levitical priesthood. But the only reason he's bringing this up is he's still trying to teach these people seeped in old covenant mentality of why Jesus is everything that the old covenant was pointing to from the very beginning. Not a Levitical priest, not even uh, any other type of priest, even better and and, and yet the same as Melchizedek, who was a priest of a completely different order, which we're going to talk about. But then he says here, so in verse 5 it says, so also Christ didn't glorify himself so as to become a high priest. He didn't say, I can do this better than anyone. Come on, God. Come on, Father. Let me go. I'm the man here. I'm sin- I could go down there and live a life. No, no. He was, and before time began, Christ didn't stand up and say, I. He was called by the Father. And he says what? <clears throat> you are my son. See, the Scripture records this. You are my son. And today... I have begotten you. And then just as also in another passage, he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we see here, today you are my son, or today I have begotten you. Again, this is a confusing thing about this word begotten. Begotten is not the language of creation. It's not that I created you, today I have made you born. Begotten is language of appointment. So the psalmist in Psalm 2, which is all about the reigning king to come, God talks of him and says, Today, I have begotten you. I have made you this priest. You are my son, and I am declaring it now. You are appointed that, and you are also appointed a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the joining of these two psalms is important because the Jewish people used to think that there may be two messiahs. There may be there was a certain sect of Jews that believed that one of them was very well respected, called the Essenes. They were the ones that lived out in the wilderness in a community called Qumran, which is where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the the, the community at Qumran held these dead. The, you know, they lived out there. Most of them lived out in the wilderness, sort of like. Um, you know, like the Amish would. You know, they just, but they were very, very well-respected, super holy people, I guess you could say. Shared a lot of the beliefs that we would share even in Christianity as it relates to the afterlife. And they believed also that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would do all those things, but there potentially may be two Messiahs. One under the order of Aaron, a high priest, Messiah, and the other, a king, as to fulfill Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, which is obviously both quoted here. Now, <clears throat> the royal one from David and a priestly one from Aaron. This is where, when we, remember when John the Baptist, see, John the Baptist was known to be an ascetic. He was the one, one of those guys that lived out in the wilderness, as we remember, and he was very well familiar with them and with those customs, and that's why John said, Hey, are we to expect you? Or are you alone? Are you the expected one? Meaning the one? Or shall we look for someone else? And there's a part of that passage that says, are, are you just the, you're not the high priest? I mean, are you going to be dying and saving the world? Or maybe he was saying, are you not the king? I mean, aren't you going to be coming and taking over here? Are we expecting somebody else? And so no, this is what the Hebrews needed to know. You're not waiting for two. Jesus is everything. He's the Son of God, He's the King, and He's the High Priest, all in one swift punch. And then we get down here to the days of His flesh, and He talks about how He executed the priesthood that they were looking for. His calling was uh, for the work of that Levitical priest. Some of the same actions, He says here in verse 7, He offered up prayers. And supplications, with loud crying and tears, to the one able to save him. The word here is out of death, not from death. Jesus wasn't sitting there praying, go, God, you know, I don't ever, I don't want to do this whole Messiah thing now. (laughs) That's not what he was saying. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember that prayer? Because that's what he's referring to here. He prayed with loud crying and tears. He was able to save this person what? From out of death. Did God save Jesus out of death? He did. He raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. And I love how he brings this passage in here and uses the tears, the loud crying. Because we remember in Gethsemane, what? In Luke's Luke's telling of it, he sweat blood. And it is his blood that redeems us because he's son of God and high priest. But it's also, to me, the blood in the garden of Gethsemane that dripped out of his forehead. To me, that shows on our side of it how he could represent our condition so perfectly. He went to the utmost of agony. He went to the utmost of anguish. He felt the guilt of all the sin that was laid upon him. He was taken into a spot like Kevin prayed before. He was an innocent, innocent man that was treated as a criminal. But you see, Jesus had what I like to look at as, because it says here, you know, that he obeyed, right? If we go to verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So he was made perfect to what? Our human condition. And so Jesus didn't experience maybe every single sin or error. I'm sorry. Jesus never sinned. Take note. Pat didn't preach blasphemy. Got to say that nowadays. Okay, so Jesus didn't, wasn't tempted by every single sin out there in the world. What they're trying to say was, was that Jesus experienced our human condition. He was tempted from without by the misery of our entire situation here on earth. And when, we are, when the human, normal person, is, is confronted with misery and all of those things, we, tep- we, we, ha- we typically sin. Okay that's usually the first thing in our mind to do when we stop if we're believers and we go to the Lord but other times sometimes we we falter and we try to heal that pain ourselves but Jesus performs that perfect duty of a priest with this special obedience because he was sinless he took on a curse and he never truly ever experienced sin ever Everyone else in the world, even if they're innocent at a certain thing, no one in the world was ever completely innocent. Had never experienced what it was to to, to feel internally a sin. And Jesus maintained that through the suffering. And that suffering made him complete to identify with our condition. And so he now became perfect, and all those who obey him, is he is the source of eternal salvation. He learned obedience. Again, he needed to have the full picture of what it was to be in that human condition. I remember, you know, as a sales manager um, in the fitness industry, you're like, when did Pat do all these things? I often think of myself this too. So if I'm off on my dates a little bit, forgive me. But I remember a new manager would come in he would be, let's say, my assistant manager. Or maybe I was training him for, to be a manager in another place or in our location, whatever the case is. These people came in very skilled from other places. They knew sales. They knew how to lead people. They knew how to manage people. They were organized. But do you know, And before they were able to take on that management position, they had to go through every single department of our gym. They had to work a week at the front desk. They had to work a week in group fitness. They had to work a week in sales. They had to work a week here, a week there. Why? So they could fully experience every aspect of that company, of that business, to be able to relate with customers in every department and in every aspect of their experience. And I think of this. Even if they're naturally born, they're great. They're perfect sales. No, they still have to go through that. Jesus still needed to learn. The dark and wicked world that we live in so perfectly so he could be that perfect high priest or at least that's how i see the scripture talking about it so what do we see here we see god has a very specific purpose and structure for his priesthood this includes jesus not jesus isn't excluded from this because god is a god of order God is a God of justice. God doesn't do things halfway. He doesn't skip steps. God has created a perfect, incredibly perfect, orderly universe, and that stems out of that perfectly ordered mind of God, which is inherently logic, logical, which is inherently truth, is inherently perfect. And all that comes out in his commands and in his word. And so Jesus had to follow the path. Of that priest. Now, how does this relate to us? We know not anyone can be a priest. And we know that the priesthood no longer exists like it did back then in the Old Testament. But he, like he selected the priests and like he selected Jesus, as we started out here, God also selects us despite what we believe we think we're good at or what we think we're not good at. He has a very specific path for you in your life, regardless of where you're at. We refer to this as calling in the Christian community. A calling. It's a, if I called you, no one would need any explanation of that. You would hear your voice, and if you had respect for me, you would turn around and say, what, or what do you need, or you would walk over, you would respond to that call. Now, if you knew I was calling you to do something you didn't really want to do, you may ignore me a little bit or get into another conversation, and I would probably just walk away and not talk to you about it until maybe the next time I saw you. But God's not like that. God is going to call you and call you and point you and guide you and hedge your path, and he's going to aim you. I don't care where you are or who you are. If you're a Christian, this is what's going to happen. But get this. God doesn't just call you for any old reason. I'm going to call you to this or call you that. No, he calls you for his purpose, but also he calls you to change you. God calls his servants in order to use them and to change them according to what they must learn to be who they must become. Let me say that again. He calls his servants in order to use them and change them. According to what they must learn and who they must become. So you may say, wow, I have this calling in my life for whatever it is. And you may be nowhere near being able to step into that calling. But that doesn't mean it may not be your calling. It may mean you're part, you've now started it. And now you're going to be trained by God. And you're going to be put through circumstances. And yes, including Suffering. He does this with all of his children. He has a valuable, extremely valuable purpose of it. And like Christ, there are multiple aspects of your calling. There are multiple aspects for Jesus' calling. Okay? Prophet, priest, and king. All right? And then subcategories of that. And every one of us is born with this calling. Now you may say, okay, well, what's my calling, Pat? Don't try to get me involved in ministry. Do you know? that your calling, has the least it has to do with anything, is ministry. Do you know that? Your first calling, your very first calling, is not to ministry, but to Jesus Christ in full submission to Him. That's your first calling, that's my first calling. And secondly, what your calling is, is to your role in your family. What's your role in your family? Are you a father? Then you have a calling to that child or children first before anything other than your calling to Christ. In scripture today, we talked about, we're talking through Timothy 3. That's all about the calling of the elder and deacon, what they must be. So we see that there's these built-in callings that we may be called to pastor or to be, and then we must have all these different qualifications. But again, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being called first as a Christian, and this whole book is what you're supposed to follow the best that you can. Following Christ's footsteps, be led by the Holy Spirit. It's a restful, joyful following. This is not a laborious, striving following. That's your number one calling, and then second to that, and obviously that follows all the commands in Scripture, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. But the second calling, I think a lot of us, especially in this country, because of the divorce rate, the remarriage rate, and the abandonment rate of children, we see the repercussions of that. Because of family being the fabric of our society, we see all sorts of repercussions. So be first faithful to your calling to Christ, second to your family, husbands and wives. See your calling in Ephesians 5:21 to 23. Fathers and mothers, raise your children unto the Lord without compromise. Children, clean your rooms. I'm just kidding. Obey your parents. Honor your parents. but regardless of how wrong you may think they are, give them the honor and the respect and listen to what they are saying. Now, after those things are foundational, you're following Christ. That's your first calling. You know that you're doing your best in your calling or you're working on your calling in your family. And again, you could just that could maybe some of you here have a family. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're part of a network of, or you're part of a group of friends that you call family. This works. This fits. Maybe you have abandoned your family. Then you would go back to them. Maybe you're not treating your wife with the love and respect she needs. You need to start doing that. And same with wives to husbands. These are the things that God cares about most way before everything else. And then third is your calling to the church. The church of Christ. Your brothers and sisters in the Lord. That comes first before ministry. Ministry. We're all called to love each other here. Do you know all the gifts that you gave, that were given to you by God? The spiritual gifts that you were given? In 1 Corinthians 12, you could read those. There's some that's given the uh, manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, another one, a word of wisdom, another faith, another healing, miracles. You know, Romans 12 talks about. All of us have differing gifts. One is faith, one is service, one is serving, one is teaching, and all these different things. Do you know that all of that is taught in the context of ministering to the church and edifying and building up the saints with our calling? And so do you see how God organically uses His church to go out and spread the gospel? Because the more we serve each other, the more we love each other, the more we are going to replicate for Christ. And so you have that calling in the church and that, I guess, could be a special calling. That's why in Timothy it says, make sure that they're above reproach. Make sure they manage their home. Make sure they have only one wife. Make sure their personal life and personal relationship with Jesus Christ is in order. And then the extracurricular, ministry joining, and all that other stuff. Don't get me wrong, you don't have to be sinless and perfect. Because that's never going to happen. Don't let that be your excuse. But if you have those gifts, then you need obligated... You're obligated by god just as jesus was obligated to uh, to be his to be a high priest and aaron was obligated to do the same thing you are obligated to use your gifts for the church look at it says here in romans 12 6 to 8 since we have these gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us each exercise them accordingly. It's a very clear command. But what if we don't use them? What if we're just dilly-dallying around? What if we're just, you know, sort of float, you know, making excuses and we know we should be using our gifts. We know God has called us with this. We know we have this knack or this ability that he's given us, this spiritual gift. Well, those gifts are not necessarily taken away from you but they will atrophy. They will atrophy. They will break down. They will get weak, as will your interest in the Lord. But when you use them, when you exercise them, what do you think happens? They grow, they expand, and they mature. Don't wait till you're super qualified. Don't wait till you're not as much as a sinner as you already are. Don't wait for somebody to come up and ask you, don't wait for hearing the voice from God. I know those are some reasons why people don't. But I believe the number one reason we don't use our gifts is not willing to sacrifice. Not willing to prioritize. Many times church comes second, third, or fourth serving at church. Hey, I'm doing my best. You know, I'm giving to missions over here. I'm doing this over here. But, and I'm saying that's great, but your local church needs you. Your local church needs you. you, you, The Lord has given you gifts. You need to make them priority in your life. And let me just tell you, the worst of all is when you don't do this, you miss a tremendous blessing, individually and corporately as a church. When a church is on fire for serving the Lord in their calling, and they're loving each other, and they're doing and exercising their gifts, the church naturally Expands. Listen to this, look at the sacrificial selflessness, this model that was given to us by the early church. Acts 2, 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 is our scripture that we've that we've taken as a church, as our vision statement. They were continually, well, really, as our mission, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. But they were together, right? Ministering. And then it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And those who had believed were together and they had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. And I'm not saying we need to do this here because that's a, some scholars say, well, that's communism failed or they could not, that this could not sustain itself in the Christian church. And there's lots of reasons for that. But I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at the self-sacrifice of these people at the time that they were fresh off the Holy Spirit coming in. They're serving each other. They're selling their possessions. They're giving it to each other, the, uh, whoever has need. And day by day, continuing with one mind and breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together, gladness and sincerity of heart. Is this a church you want to belong to? I mean, it sounds like a, a lively, spirit-moving church. And of course, they say they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this service, this calling we need to get serious about. Especially, again, first, our first calling is to Christ. Loving Christ. Being a Christian. Walking in the Spirit. Staying plugged in with Christ. Vine into the branches, right? Next is look at your family. Look at your marriage. Look at your relationships with your your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your father. Look at your relationships with other parts of your... Realize that this here is what God is looking at. Because if a man can't manage his own family well, how is he going to manage anything in the household of God? Christ, God, uses the family as an extremely valuable uh, component in this earth, in this world, in the running and managing of the church, in the kingdom of God. So first, calling Christian, be one. Second, family roles. Third, local church, your gifts for his church and his kingdom. That's my encouragement to you today. Look at Jesus Christ Look at the fact that, look at what he did and he went. what he went through. What he sacrificed to make sure that he would be faithful to God's calling upon him. Look what he did. He did that because the Father called him out of love for you. Jesus said, yes, I'll do it out of love for you. The Holy Spirit affirmed that and said, yes, I will do it out of love for you. I will make them alive. I will be indwelling in them. I will walk with them. you got everything on your side. Think about it. Would you not travel three and a half, seven years like the Queen of Sheba did to meet this Christ, to meet this high priest, to meet the very living Word of God? You don't have to do it. You can simply cry out and call them. Call to Him. He's calling you. Respond to your call. We'll, we'll end there. Please read ahead the rest of chapter 5. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your calling, Lord. Teach us to, uh, well, just meet us where we are, Lord, because this is a, a very challenging thing uh, for us to wrap our mind around, Lord. And I pray that you would give us peace as we do this, Lord, the peace of Christ as we do this, knowing that it's you that is going to move us and it is going to fill us with enthusiasm. It's going to fill us with, with wisdom to do what you have called us to do. And we know, Lord, where you guide, you provide. So we trust in you as Christ did. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we invite you to stand and sing with us this last singing before the throne of
0: God above and really consider the words that we're singing as we approach.